Alan's breathing. <laughs> Whoopee. <laughs> Maybe I can make it not quite in the line of my nostrils. So this afternoon, you know what to expect. We'll be turning to the third of the fourth measurables, empathetic joy. The Tibetan is simply gawa, or in Sanskrit, mudita, which simply means delight, delight, joy. But I think it might be helpful just momentarily to take a couple of steps back, uh, because within this grid, this matrix of the four measurables and how they interrelate, and I'm thinking especially of Bodhagosa's analysis of the the near enemies, the far enemies, the proximate cause, signs of failure, signs of success, is really quite brilliant. I mean, I, mean, I think it's first-rate genius. Um, but I don't, I'm not going to go into that elaborate explanation. It would take too long for time being. But simply the manner in which each of the four measurables serves as a natural antibody or remedy uh, for one of the others when it goes astray, when it falls into its false facsimile. And so I think this is very, very worth reviewing, and it may, might even be new to some of you, especially people listening, listening by podcast. So let's just go back briefly to the first of the four measurables, loving-kindness. Clearly a virtue. I think your understanding of it is clear. But then among the four measurables, uh, which of these goes astray, and for which of those that go astray is loving-kindness the, uh, the suitable remedy? the good friend. And it is, in fact, empathetic joy. When it goes astray, it goes astray in a way that we're all, I think, very familiar with. And that is, just call it hedonic fixation. It's just, Dharma's all very well, but I'm just so busy right now. And I'm focused on career, I'm focused on relationship, I'm focused on getting over my health issues, I'm I'm focused on paying my bills, I'm focused on hedonia. I'm getting by, uh, and it's tough. This is a tough world to get by in for many, many people. And Dharma just gets to be kind of a luxury item that gets postponed when times are smoother and easier. You know? And this happens, I think, probably to all of us on occasion, and for some people it doesn't happen. It is where they're living, because there is no vision. There is no vision of Yidamani. They don't know what the word means. They don't know the corresponding term in their own language. There is no vision. And when I really think of, you know, I follow the media pretty closely, BBC and some of the major American media and so on. And, you know, there's just basically no reference to eudaimony at all. I mean, it's pretty much not there. It's all about hedonia. And hedonia is not something that's stupid or vulgar. It's helping people in poverty. It's about, you know, creating peace where there's war and so forth. It's not trivial. But it's just that it's so limited. It's just so limited. It's addressing all the political problems, environmental, economic, social, moral, legal, and so forth problems. And then there's no vision. There's no vision in popular media. I'm not saying there's no vision in modernity. There is. Christianity, if you know where to look, has tremendous vision. And so do other wisdom traditions. But it's not out there where you can see it, and it's not in academia. I've had a lot of academia. You know, I have a PhD. So I sought it out, of course, in religious studies. But by and large in academia, there's no vision there. Not even in religious studies, by and large, unless you really seek it out. So it's hedonia across the boards. 
And that's the current of humanity, but especially now, especially now, I think perhaps more so than in recorded history that I know of, uh, it's just visionless, you know, visionless. And the working assumption through the media, the academia, the scientific community, uh, is when you're dead, you're dead. Game over. You know, that's it. And that's pretty much the vision that's out there and not even being questioned. As if, if, you're, if you're not a religious believer, you know, one of those people that's kind of soft-headed, don't, don't think very clearly, and you're caught up in wishful thinking. If you're realistic, just face the facts. When you're dead, you're dead. You're finished. Game over. And there's just no vision there. And so it's very easy to understand why people might encounter some authentic dharma and then just fade, I mean, blade by blade, fade out and gets to go right back to complete fixation, almost like self-hypnosis. And what's the antidote for that? Because there's one thing you can be sure of, insofar as the life is completely focused on the hedonic, it ends badly. I mean, it always does. It never turns out well if it's all about hedonia. For a very simple reason, whatever you acquire, hedonia is all about acquiring getting reputation, getting success, getting enjoyment, getting, getting, getting. And of course, it always turns out losing everything you've gotten. Whether you got a little bit or you got a lot, it, in the end game, it's, it, you lose everything. So it kind of doesn't matter what you had because you lose all of it anyway. It never turns out well. And so the antidote to that is just don't think about it. You know? So it's very, very, it's immensely sad. It's immensely sad. And yet, right here in front of us, and it's not just Buddhism, I mean, there's, there are wisdom traditions all over the world, East and West, ancient and modern, where it's there, but it's not getting covered. It doesn't get the microphone. So, coming right back to loving kindness, when we do find ourselves, whether for a morning or for a year or for, a, you know, for years on end, just going with the flow of it's all about hedonia, where there's no vision. There's just no vision except for, oh, more of this should be good. More of the good part, you know, more acquisition, more fame, more power, more pleasure, more entertainment, more better vacations, nicer car, nicer, nicer, nicer. That's the vision. It's the vision of stupor. It's the vision of unintelligence because the scientific evidence is so totally clear that just getting more of the same does not make one happier. I mean, it's unequivocally established as a scientific fact. And before then, for centuries and centuries, it was known by sages east and west. So we're coming back again not to ramble too much. But loving kindness is all about vision. It's all about vision. It's not just may you, you know, may we all be well and happy and may we all have a lots of hedonia. Because that'll never happen. So again, I'm not going to I'm not going to go in a direction of aspiring for something that simply can't happen. You're born, you get you're going to get sick, you're going to get age, you're going to you're going to get age and then you're going to die. And whatever you acquire, you're going you're gonna to lose. So that's kind of a given. Now have a nice day. You know, in the midst of that, where is there any vision of happiness? And there is an incredibly rich vision of happiness. And I've known so many really accomplished Dharma practitioners for, the, for whom you can see this is not hypothetical. This is not some abstract belief. This is real. And I've known such people. I've known them for years. And they're embodying what I'm talking about right now. So then, you know, if, if I keep my eyes open, this is perfectly clear. So... Antidote for that, it's right there in loving kindness, and loving kindness is about, is about vision. And I think there's not a bad strategy in that fourfold vision quest. Uh, when we're just focused on getting by, on success, on 
just the mundane, stepping back and simply asking the simple question, what would make you truly happy? You know, what would make you truly happy? Do you really think this is going to work out? If you had this much money or this much fame, this much success, this much acquisition, this type of a marriage, this type, is that really going to do it over the long term? That's going to turn out well? You really think so? You know, get vision. And the fourfold vision question, I think, you know, it really brings to mind the possibility of vision. So there's the first one, loving kindness. Serves as an antidote for empathetic joy, where it just focuses on the good, good life, hedonically. Then compassion, now briefly stated. Cultivation of compassion, the cultivation of this is an antidote, an antibody, for equanimity when it falls into aloof indifference. Where one may become, especially it's easy here in the 21st century, to be so overwhelmed by the amount of information, and like by the way of the media, which I'm checking every day, and just feeling, this is like a tsunami of bad news, and it's so large, and there's so many people, and there's so many forces here that are just all about delusion, greed, hostility, and so forth. And here I am. And here's one of the big themes of modern astronomy and, and evolutionary biology and so forth, and that is just how bloody insignificant we are. I mean, they really hammer it in. We are so insignificant, you know, as a species, as a planet. And then, oh, you're only one of seven billion? Boy, that makes you minuscule. You're, you're, you're vanishingly insignificant. I can hardly see you, you know. And that's about ourselves. And uh, so all of that can be very dispiriting uh, and just can easily give rise to a sense of, oh, what the hell? I don't care anymore. I can't do anything about it anyway. So what the hell? And just go into cold indifference and say, not my problem. Not my problem. I'm just going to try to get by myself, have a good time. I'm going to be dead soon anyway. And uh, it's kind of bleak. yeah. And compassion. We turn our attention right back to the world, right back to ourselves, right back to those around us. And we say, well, you can think whatever you like, but suffering is about as real as it gets. Suffering and the causes of suffering. Blink all you like. But boy, open your eyes again, and that's right there. And people really are suffering. Really suffering. Perpetuating the suffering. Not because they want to, but because they don't know any better. You know. And just reflect on that, and still the heart just starts to move. It starts to, pout. It starts to beat again. You know. And you start to care again. So compassion moves one out of that kind of myopic, aloof, lethargic, visionist apathy of cold indifference. It really does. It really does. When we reflect upon our own suffering, times we've really, really got beaten up by physical or mental suffering. And we know how it really catches the attention. Uh, then when we see those around us, many, many, many are experiencing that right now. If you attend, I mean, for the moment, what we attend to is reality. And if we do attend to those who are really suffering, it takes a person who's really seriously damaged mentally to be able to attend closely and still not care. That's a rare individual. I think most of us, we really find, have to care. You have to care. And so then now we go to the t today's topic. Very rich one, and it's kind of like the easily overlooked one. Uh, loving kindness, you can't overlook that. Everybody loves. The, the Beatles love love. Everybody loves love. You know, And compassion, it's everywhere. We all know the word. It's a wonderful word in English. 
And equanimity, that is the unconditioned quality, that's what that's unconditional love, unconditional. That gets good billing, good billing, that gets, you know, that gets highlighted. But the third one, not so much. And yet, I think it's as important as all the rest, this, this joy, empathetic joy. And that for which it serves as the antidote. Because again, because of the times, this 21st century where we live, it really strikes me that this empathetic joy is especially important. It's always been, it's always been important. But in our world, it strikes me as being especially important. Because it is the antidote when compassion goes astray. And it falls into despair. Into despair. Uh, just grief, despair. But despair, I think, is the best word. And that is when it tends to the suffering of others. And then just when it tends and it does become real. And then it becomes so real that it's just overwhelming. And then it's right back to the same old, same old, what can a person like me? I'm not a bodhisattva, I'm not an ayobodhisattva, I'm not a vidyadara, I'm not a saint, I'm not a sage, I'm just really so ordinary. And then here's this world, and what can a person like me do? Nothing. And just fall into despair, despondency, and a loss of hope, and once again a loss of vision. And empathetic joy comes in, and that's the remedy. It's the remedy. It's very easy for any of us, certainly myself included, to think in black and white terms, like, can I achieve shamatha or not? That's yes or no, right? Yes or no. <coughs> and yet when we fall into that, when kind of that notion, yes or no, is it worth, it, 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 it is, it's worth doing if I can achieve it. If I can't, well then the hell with it. You know, like that. Um, shamatha is not like that. And that is what the nine stages are for. Okay, maybe maybe shaman may be difficult. Maybe you can't achieve it. Maybe you'll die tomorrow. Then you probably won't achieve it. But how about stage two? You know, you break it down. You say, well, stage two—that's better than stage one. That's getting a bit of continuity. You know, sanity all in a stretch. Five seconds, ten seconds, cool. You know? And so you break it down. And you say, well, God, I just don't know. I don't know whether I'll live long enough. I don't know whether the circumstances come together. I don't know how much inspiration and momentum and merit I have. Do I know? Can I achieve shamatha in this lifetime? Don't know. I don't know. But is that a direction worth going in? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely, yes, unequivocally, without any kind of doubt whatsoever. That that's the direction to go to, and not just walk around in circles or go backwards. But similarly, when it comes to the larger picture, we look at the, the tremendous needs of the world in so many different ways. And again this theme, because we are so unprecedentedly overwhelmed by the bad news and, the, and the, the travails of the modern world, it's very easy to think, well, a person like myself, namely this one, right, me, I can't really do much, I can't really do anything. I mean, it's just overwhelming. It's like looking at a 30-foot tsunami wave coming in, and yeah, what are you going to do about that? Well, duck. You know, what can I do? Nothing. But... It's a lack of vision. Once again, it's a lack of vision. And that, as you, as you step out the door, if you see another person, can you just attend to that person with affection? That actually is very nice to do that. People like it. Have you noticed? When you attend to them with affection. Just warmth, kindness. You know, it feels nice, doesn't it? It's, it's something good. It feels good to do it, to extend it. It's lovely to be a recipient, to know it, show another person an act of kindness, even the smallest thing, to see another person in need in some way and to be able to fulfill that need. 
uh, it's not yes or no. It's not can I solve the world's problems or not. It's where I live, can I have a helpful influence? Can I bring some warmth, some wisdom, some kindness to the world? And maybe I could bring it to myself first. You know. <coughs> so this is where empathetic joy comes in. It's the, the, the glass half full rather than half empty. And I don't mean to trivialize it, because it's not trivial at all. But this empathetic joy, again, I'm going to do something that you don't find in the Buddha Sutras, because I don't think it was such a big issue until modern time. This whole issue of low self-esteem and all that business. You don't even have those terms in Buddhism, or in Tibetan, and so forth. But it is such a big deal nowadays, that even though it sounds a bit ironic, or kind of like, how do you say, it doesn't even work linguistically to speak of empathetic joy toward yourself, what does that mean? Wait a minute, you are one person, how can you feel empathy for yourself? I'll tell you how. I'll tell you exactly how you can feel empathy for yourself. In the same way you can feel contempt for yourself. How many people are there there? When you feel contempt for yourself, is there one of you or two of you? I think there must be two. Because the person who is feeling contempt for you is feeling a little bit, a bit higher than you. Yeah? This guy, Alan Wall, is such a schmuck. At least I'm not as much of a schmuck as he is. You know, there's already a bit of internal bifurcation of looking down on the person you've objectified as yourself and finding this person wanting, deficient, kind of a disappointment. But from whose perspective? Your perspective, which is a bit elevated. You know? So we already do that. We already bifurcate our very sense of identity. In narcissism, there's this congratulation that I'm such a superior person, I'm so exceptional. If only people knew how exceptional I really am. And there's this self-congratulation, like you know, you're a cheerleader for yourself. There's a bifurcation internally. It's already there. And so we do that. But if we do this in these afflictive ways, these kind of neurotic ways, then we may as well say, okay, if we're going to do that, let's do something healthy about it. But what's interesting here, because this is not a step towards narcissism to try to overcome low self-esteem, that's you know just remedying one affliction with another affliction. You know, high self-esteem, low self-esteem, which is worse? Really, you know, I don't see either one of them as being helpful. Uh, why don't you just take self out of the equation? And in our lives, as we tend to those occasions where we brought something good to the world, whether we've gone for a weekend retreat and it was meaningful, we had a good motivation, we spent it meaningfully. We dedicated merit, and it was a weekend. You look back on that, that was a good weekend. And it's not, oh, look at me, like Tarzan pounding his chest. It's kind of like, that was a good weekend. you know, Or an act of kindness here, or doing something else there. Something meaningful, something good, something making a contribution. Even if it's primarily making a contribution to purifying and refining your own mind. That's also very meaningful. So these little things, a weekend retreat, going on an eight-week retreat, going to receive teachings, giving some teachings, a number of your teachers in your own right, uh, and in various ways, teaching yoga, teaching language, and so forth and so on. Um, there's a lot to take satisfaction in. And to focus on that, without even the whiff, or even a fragment of narcissism, self-congratulation, me, 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 it's not me, 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 it's it, it, it. Taking delight in what we brought to the world, and where there are things to take delight in. Yeah. And then we see, oh, actually I'm not total waste. I'm not a waste of space or of air. I've brought something good to the world. And so to reflect upon one's own successes, one's virtues, 
the goodness one has brought to the world and take delight in that. Sankhava says, the great Sankhava says, well, among the various ways to increase your merit, to, to increase this kind of spiritual charge, momentum, inspiration, energy that, that propels you along the path, merit, uh, the easiest way. You remember, Glenn? The easiest way to accrue merit? What's that? Actually, no, the e- that's harder. This is easier. Rejoicing in your own merit. Rejoicing in your own, that's the easiest way. I want easiest. <laughs> you know, show me the easiest first, then I'll get to the more challenging things later. But I want the easiest. And just looking back on your own virtues, what the, the, the goodness, the virtues, whatever good you brought to the world, and just taking delight in that. It shouldn't be too hard. And that's the easiest way. And then, of course, then you can extend that outwards to others and say, well, let's say the Dalai Lama, has he done anything good in the world? Yeah, maybe something to take satisfaction in, to, to rejoice in, and so forth. And then he's not alone happily. There are other many noble people in the, in the Buddhist tradition, uh, in other religious traditions, outside of religious traditions, where you just look at him and say, boy, you're like a lighthouse in the middle of a, of a dark, very dark storm, in high seas, and there you are, just shedding your light. And there's so many people like that, through history and in the modern world, right now. And they're easily overlooked, because they don't get in the headlines too much. We hear about the mother who kills her children. We hear about the one more corrupt politician. We hear about another this and another that. And the most ridiculous thing that this guy who thinks he wants to be president you know, has said today, you know. We hear about that. I mean, it's just like, keep the microphone next to his mouth so we can hear the next idiotic thing he says. And then make sure everybody knows about it. The fascination for this, I find, is utterly astonishing. I mean, maybe I should just start making all the incredibly stupid comments that I have and I'll get a microphone. Yeah. I have my microphone, try to use it well. But there it is, you know, to take delight. That it's not only idiocy, not only greed and stupidity and short-sightedness and hostility and flat-out delusional meanness. There's so much good out there. And it's easily overlooked. In our world, it's easily overlooked because that's not what makes its way into the media. When you want to know the news that happened today, look on that front page and see how much good news there is. Good luck with that. You know? And it's not that it isn't there, but apparently that doesn't sell newspapers or get you to go onto their website and so forth. They found that out. It actually doesn't sell. And that's why it's not there. I mean, they'll put anything there that sells because they're money-making businesses. They're for-profit businesses. And they're going to put on their website or on their newspaper that which will get more readers to read and then look at their advertisements or buy subscriptions and so forth. And apparently good news doesn't sell very well. I guess it's boring. Uh, but then it gives us a very skewed, a very biased, a very highly edited vision of reality that's not realistic. So we come back to the meditation. Let's do so. Let's go to empathetic joy. Let's sit down and enjoy ourselves.
in a spirit of empathetic joy of taking delight in our opportunities, our leisure, our good fortune. Whether today here in Tuscany or wherever you may be listening by podcast, whether it's tomorrow, Sunday, or sometime afterwards, wherever you are listening to this teaching in this podcast, this means you have leisure. You're not needing to spend this minute, this hour, this hour and a half, just trying to survive. You have the leisure. You have the opportunity. And I would say the teachings are sound. I'm simply passing on the words of the Buddha and other great enlightened beings. So I have confidence. The Dharma here is authentic Dharma. So to take delight, take satisfaction, to appreciate, and even to revel in having 24 minutes to do nothing other than to cultivate our hearts and minds in a very meaningful way, that can give rise to short-term and long-term benefits all the way to perfect enlightenment itself. That's something to savor. Never take for granted. In the spirit of appreciation, settle your body, speech, and mind in the natural state. then I invite you to direct your awareness inwards in upon your own life. We've all been here at least for a few decades. The years have gone by. And so in terms of the course of life that has brought us to this present moment, let's look back upon that path, that trajectory. from childhood on, through adolescence, through adulthood. As you reflect upon your own narrative, your own life history, what you've done in solitude, what you've done in relationship to others around you, the world at large, do you see anything in which to to take satisfaction? To rejoice? 
in your own good fortune that has come your way, to take delight in that. And what you've brought to the world already, maybe not earth-shattering, maybe not world-transforming, but in your, in your location, in your immediate environment, Tend to the goodness you brought to the world through your own inner cultivation of your heart and mind, your way of life, your understanding. And the goodness you brought to others. Attend to those memories. Take satisfaction, delight. This is what brings your life meaning. It makes your, your life meaningful to others. You may conjoin this with the breath, with the light as you've done before, as you breathe out. Just breathe out this light of appreciation, of delight. It could be also mixed with gratitude that you've had this opportunity and you have been blessed in so many ways. Breathe out the light of appreciation, of gladness. With the awareness that a meaningful life is not something that may happen to you in the future. In many ways your life has already been meaningful. It's what you brought you here. Not out of a vacuum. There was a momentum there. And as you reflect upon your successes, reflect upon the, the goodness, the virtues you brought to the world, as you reflect upon how deeply entwined your own life is with those around you, then reflect upon, in this very personal way, the kindnesses that have been shown to you by your parents, your friends, your teachers as you were growing up. Reflect upon those over the course of your life who have enriched your life, nurtured you, sustained you, upheld you with their kindness. And as you take delight in their virtues, 
This is again permeated with a sense of gratitude. Without them, without the kindness of others, where would any of us be?
then direct your awareness outwards. Selectively, as in any shamatha practice. Attending to the joys of others and their successes, wherever it is wholesome, including hedonic well-being. Attending to those many individuals, sometimes governments, businesses, communities, organizations, that are committed to helping enhance the hedonic well-being of those in need. Food, clothing, shelter, medical care, education. So much goodwill and so many good deeds. So much benefit offered and received. Let this light of appreciation, permeated with gratitude, flow out in all directions. To those with pure motivation, who are trying to help to make this a better world. In, very, in various ways and to various degrees, those who embody the Dharma. Whether yogis and yoginis living in solitude, purifying, refining, developing their minds. Whether those teaching Dharma, creating institutions, supporting institutions. Those many, many people throughout the world who seek to practice and support the flourishing of Dharma, the vision of eudaimonia, the vision of a path of awakening itself, and who inspire, who guide, who support and nurture us all as we seek a more meaningful life. Attend to them closely, and then breathe out the light of your appreciation, your delight, your gratitude.
As we come to the closing minutes of the session, for those of us here in Tuscany, we've gone global, now let's go local again. Such a precious opportunity we have here. And so many people have contributed. Behind the scenes, organizing this. But those people we see day to day, the people cooking the food, purchasing the food, growing the food, maintaining the grounds, there to be of help whenever they can. So much kindness here from the local community of this Dharma Center, the surrounding community that supports them. None of this would be possible without them, without their kindness. And there is a blessing in practicing in community. As we've all introduced ourselves to each other, it's quite clear that we share a lot in common, common aspirations, common dedication to practice, common motivation. A spiritual family. The teachings themselves, passed on from generation to generation, right down to the present, from such noble and sublime sources. Rejoice in the kindness of others, the virtues of others. Those, those listening by podcast, you too do not exist in isolation. There have to be people around you that make it possible for you to practice, to have times of leisure, times of quiet, times to focus in on your own practice, and then manifest it in the world around you when you step off your cushion and out into the rest of the world. There's a principle in Buddha Dharma that as we follow the path, half the kindness we receive, half the kindness, is from the enlightened ones, the objects of refuge, the Sangha, the Buddhas, the enlightened ones over history. And half the kindness we receive and the independence upon which we practice is from our fellow sentient beings, without whom practice would be impossible. So take delight in it all. The guidance and blessings we receive from from the Tri Jewels, from the lineage of Gurus, the kindness and support we receive from our fellow sentient beings. We're living in an ocean of blessings. Attend to it, it becomes real. And take delight in it.
down below you. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Still take some nostrils. <laughs> Stop breathing. That's it. <coughs> so let's return to the text. <coughs> this chapter on. Refuge in Bodhicitta, we've covered refuge, and now we venture more deeply into Kamachamata, which is very dense uh, synopsis <coughs> of Bodhicitta. <coughs> so I think we left off, unless I'm mistaken, on the last line in, in larger, larger font. So here it is necessary to strive to generate the Mahayana aspiration. <coughs> Am I correct? I think that's it. Yeah. So we pick up on the top of page 27 <coughs> in the larger font. Excuse me. <coughs> Sorry. So regarding the generation of the Mahayana aspiration, there are divisions in terms of its essence, its characteristics, its causes and conditions, and its numerous levels. So it's good to bring a rich understanding to this and not just have it as a soundbite. You know, a liturgy, just something to recite periodically. This brings richness to it, a theoretical texture and a broader context for the cultivation, uh, cultivation and practice of bodhicitta. So first there is the division between the Mahayana relative, and I'm just going to use my, my current translation. I'm just going back to the Sanskrit. So first there is the division between the Mahayana relative bodhicitta and ultimate bodhicitta. The Sutra on Unraveling the Enlightened View, the Tibetan term is Gongba, much better translated as Enlightened View, states there are two types, there are two kinds of bodhicitta, the ultimate bodhicitta and relative bodhicitta. Okay, good. So what are they? <clears throat> the characteristic of the Mahayana relative bodhicitta is an awareness focused on achieving perfect enlightenment for the sake of others. <coughs> Just to elaborate very, very briefly here, and that is there's a very clear causal sequence here in terms of how does it arise. And it arises from outwards to inwards. What doesn't happen, which easily we can fall into this, not something terrible, but it's just different, is reflecting um, on the qualities of perfect enlightenment, of Buddhahood, and then thinking, boy, I would like that, that would be fantastic, I really like that, yeah, I want to achieve that, and oh yeah, everybody else, I hope that helps. I hope that helps, you know. That's not it. That's not it. It's actually looking outwards. It's assuming, frankly, that there is already some basis in this very authentic and profound Shravakayana. It's not there, it's just something to ridicule. That's absurd. It's already rooted in an awareness of suffering, one's own suffering, the suffering of others, rooted in an awareness of what are the causes of suffering, what is the path, and so forth. I mean, the stronger your rooted, rootedness in the Shravakayana of really the, with insight, Four Noble Truths and so on, then the stronger can be when it goes into full flowering can be your Mahayana aspiration of bodhicitta. And so the actual generation of bodhicitta occurs first by looking outwards. And that's where most of reality is, after all. Uh, and just seeing just how much suffering there is in the world, not only oneself, of course, but one has fathomed that. It really assumes you've got some deep insight into the first noble truth and the second noble truth, and then you go like supernova, that is, you expand that, and it's just kind of like this overwhelming sense of 
now the magnitude of suffering is so much more than my own. And seeing that it's not hopeless, that every sentient being does have Buddha nature, and then thinking, how could I be of greatest benefit? Even with no dharma at all, if I didn't do anything more, I can still be of some benefit. I think we should start there. And not think, I can't do anything, but if I become a really good Buddhist, then I can do something. We already can. We can give directions to a person who's lost. We can pick somebody up. If a child falls down, we can help. I mean, there's something we can do, hedonically at least. We're already not incompetent, incapable. And then the question comes, how could I become more, more effective in alleviating the suffering of others? And more and more, and then we just shoot right to the top. Oh, I could be of greatest possible benefit if I was completely awakened. Then I better do that. I better do that. Because this is the meaning of life. This is what it's all about. And so therefore, in order to, but the highlight is, in order to be a benefit to sentient being, now through a process of elimination, there could a lot of other good things, become a doctor, an accountant, a farmer, a midwife, and so forth, and these are all good but when you look at all of them, becoming a bodhisattva, becoming an arhat, there's just still something that's on top of the, on top of everything else, and that's become a Buddha. And so that's where that aspiration comes from. So, very simply put, as he says, it's an awareness focused on achieving perfect enlightenment for the sake of others, the ornament for higher realization, the Abhisamayalankata, states that the generated aspiration is for genuine, perfect enlightenment for the sake of others. So there it is, quite definitive. Many causes and conditions are taught, but in brief, they are. Faith in the jinas and jinaputras, the Buddhas and bodhisattvas, the conquerors and the conquerors' children, but bodhisattvas, and that is having the confidence, the faith, these are not just fictions, not just stories or you know, blind faith or whatever, these are actual beings who have been in this world and have been tremendous blessing to the world. And having faith in that, confidence in that, inspired appreciation for that. So there's one that's becoming a bodhisattva, becoming a Buddha, actually is a possibility because it's already been done. And so having faith in that, right? otherwise bodhicitta would never arise. And then having a compassionate mind, that would be really Mahakaruna, would be the one that would be the immediate catalyst. And then, interesting, this isn't very predictable when you say that causes. You don't know, don't know quite what's coming unless you're already a very good scholar. But the first one makes really good sense. Having faith in the Bodhisattva way of life and in those who followed that path and those who come to the culmination of the path and then be inspired to follow that path out of compassion and not just for your own sake. But then the third one's interesting. And of course, it's so practical. And the third cause and condition is being cared for by a spiritual friend. It's going to be hard to do this by reading, by reading books, you know, even really good books. And so coming under the, the, the compassionate care, the guidance of a spiritual friend, a Kalyanamitra, a guru, and so forth, then that will pretty well do it. That will be enough. Because that spiritual friend, or friends of course, can guide you from step to step along the path all the way to its culmination. It is said... Its root is asserted to be compassion, which entails the constant thought to be of benefit. And then the Jewel Meteor Spell Sutra states, By having faith in the jinnah and the dharma of the jinnah, faith in the way of life of the bodhisattvas, and faith in supreme enlightenment, the mind of supreme beings arises. It's quite clear. 
And then we go a little bit technical. I'm not going to go hyper-technical here, but this is interesting. And when I first learned about it, I was actually quite inspired. And that is there are 22 divisions. Okay, now you learn about this in the Abhisamaya Lankara, which is very extensively, very widely studied by especially monastic scholars in all schools of Tibetan Buddhism, especially the Gelupa, but others as well, for sure. And so there are 22 divisions raising, ranging from the earth-like bodhicitta to the cloud-like bodhicitta. So you can check out the, uh, the endnote at your leisure, endnote 29. But these are mapping or, or placing a grid of these sequential stages of evolution or development, uh, development of bodhicitta from deeper and deeper and deeper levels from the beginning of the Mahayana path of accumulation all the way up to its culmination uh, in 21 phases. And those 20, 22 phases, phases are mapped onto the five paths. Path of, of, of accumulation, of preparation, path of seeing, path of training, or meditation, and then the path of no more training. Uh, and so they're 22. It starts with earth-like bodhicitta, ends with cloud-like bodhicitta. And again, the ornament for higher realization states, earth, gold, moon, there are 22, dot, 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 there are 22 kinds. So it was Gishin Gontaike that first introduced me to this when he was teaching this text in the library back in about 1973. It was 73. And uh, this is my first introduction to the five paths and the way he taught it, because here's a man who's just embodying what he teaches. Uh, those of you, at least there's one person here who knows, you look, where's the difference between how he manifests in the world and what he's teaching? And I couldn't see any difference. It was just there, you know. Um, and it had been there for a long time. Uh, I edited, I did not translate, but I edited the first teachings on Lama <coughs> back in 71. And it became a book that's come through like seven, seven editions by now. Uh, the Tibetan tradition of mental development, that's what they called it. And then when it was all done, then someone, maybe I think it was the director of the library, Gyasutering, said, Alan, it'd be nice to have a little biography of Kishingon Taige. At the beginning, would you be willing to write that up? I said, sure. So I sat down with him and he told me his life story, condensed version. And uh, on that occasion, this is, I think this is not irrelevant. Because this is not just a bunch of scholars talking about books. You know, so here was Gishing on Taiki, and uh, I've really never met a teacher who embodies greater enthusiasm and love for Dharma than he did. And I've met a lot of really wonderful teachers. But oh, he's just, it was like he was just in love with the Dharma. And it just joy was there, you know. And I knew him for years. Translated for him on a number of occasions. He was telling me his life story. He, was, he fled Tibet when they were just leaning for their lives. And... Uh, he had two of his close disciples with him. And they headed north, as I recall. No, they headed south. And then they found the way was blocked because there were soldiers that would machine gun them down. And so they had to flee north just trying to get around them. And then they fled north, just the opposite direction they wanted to go, just to get away from you know, the firing squad. And then eventually they circled around and came south again. And then at night they found themselves surrounded. Surrounded by machine guns. The PLA. People's Liberation Army. And so it looked like, and, and by this time, Geshe Montaigne was a natural leader. Some people just have that, and he did. And so at this time, I think there was something like maybe 800 monks, lay people, that just gathered around somebody in a time of complete panic and despair and terror. And they're just looking to somehow get away from this hell realm that Tibet had been turned into. And uh, 
So there were, he was surrounded by hundreds of people. And uh, so it was at night, and there were many men with him, and these are, a lot of these are kambas, they're armed. They're not just going to lie down and get, you know, let their families be shot. So a firefight broke out. Not by the monks, by and large, that, you know, they were not fighting, but so it was Gishinomitai, he was in the midst of all of that. And he saw what was happening, so he call, called his two close disciples to him. And he, this he told me, and he said, he just called them to me, and he said, all right, because this is no way, they're not going to be shooting anybody, they're monks. And so he said, okay, and he just called them together, and he said, okay, we're about to die. So just before you die, I want you to be focusing on the Chinese, and just focus on them with compassion. And let that be your last thought. Okay. No separation between the teacher and his teaching. They escaped. And I was one of the many beneficiaries of his having escaped and being able to, to turn the wheel of Dharma. So he taught this. He taught these 22 stages. But what caught my attention, and has caught my attention ever since, is 22 stages. I basically didn't think about any of them beyond about the first two because <laughs> the other ones are so over the horizon. It's like kind of looking up at Mount Everest, and my neck will only go up to about 100 meters above my head, and beyond that I can't even see anything. It's so theoretical, so abstract, that I can't frankly even imagine it. But the beginning ones, the base of the mountain, earth-like bodhicitta, earth-like bodhicitta, gold-like bodhicitta, I got really interested in that, you know, because that's down at the base of the mountain. And so I re- was really interested in that. And wanted to know, okay, how do you get that? How do you get like earth, earth light bodhicitta? It's called earth light because it supports all of the other stages of development. Okay, it's the earth, and then it's called gold light, the second one, because you can do all kinds of things with gold, but one thing you can't do is make it become non-gold. You know, in terms of old alchemy, I mean, maybe you can drop an atom bomb on it, maybe, but back then, no. If it's gold, it stays gold. And the point of that is that the second phase of bodhicitta the gold-like bodhicitta, never reverts. You'll never lose it. From now until you're Buddha, whether that's one lifetime or three countless eons, you're going to have gold-like bodhicitta forever. That's pretty cool. That caught my attention. That really caught my attention. So I was very keen to learn, well, how do you develop earth-like bodhicitta? Where's the first step? If I can get to the first step, the second step, then all the other ones I can be considered about later, but I'm not going to be worrying about them if I can't even find the first step. And he made it totally clear. Sure, you develop the first step. You, you get to that goal-like bodhicitta by cultivating bodhicitta in, in whatever way that works, because there are many ways of cultivating it. Uh, and you cultivate it, and you cultivate it until it becomes spontaneous, until it just starts running. Here's maybe a really crude analogy, but it's good enough for me. And then as you get, in a, get, get into a car, and, you, and you remember the cars when they had keys, you turn the ignition? <laughs> remember those? <laughs> Uh, well, you have a kind of an old car, maybe it's cold, cold winter day, and you turn it and it goes, and then it goes, that's bodhicitta. <laughs> well, you don't keep on needing to crank it and crank it and crank it. You've cranked it enough that then it catches, and then it goes with, and then stop cranking the key, then just, then you're ready to go. But it's now uncontrived motor turning over and you don't need to keep on pushing it and cranking it and so forth. And so, that's not bad, not bad. And so, how, does that, how do you develop that? Well, you develop that, but of course, in order to get the mind to the point that it really can be turning over 
and the wheel of dharma, bodhicitta, can be turning over and self-perpetuating, then he added quite early on, it was in his tradition of Sarache monastic college, that to develop bodhicitta to that extent, then you have to have shamatha. You have to have a really quite a well-tuned mind, a very well-tuned mind, free of the mind obscurations, a really healthy mind as a basis for developing a sublime mind. They call it the jewel mind, the jewel of minds. Well, you have to have a really healthy mind. You can't, it'd be hard to see how you could go from straight neurosis to bodhicitta. You know, there's something, a buffer zone in between. And that would be, that would be shamatha. But then the, the, uh, but then the, uh, the gold-like, that's the one I was really interested in. Because the first one, the earth-like, Yishingon Taiki told us that this is like, 1973, so what is that, 42 years ago? 43 years ago. He said, the first one, if, if that's all you've achieved, you become a bodhisattva. You're now a bodhisattva, right? Great. But you could become an un-bodhisattva. You could fall back. You could lose your bodhicitta. It could happen. Uh, and we've seen things in, in human history where the, the villainy of human beings against human beings is so inconceivable that your mind just goes into meltdown. And we don't, I don't need to give an example. We have many. Unfortunately, we have many. Where you just wonder, how is it even conceivable that we could do that to each other? How could we? How, how could? And if one encountered that kind of up close and personal, one might think, I think there's, I think there's no hope. There's no hope for you. No hope. You have no interest in Dharma. You're adamantly fixated on anti-dharma. It's like a doctor saying, this, this patient's hopeless. There's no, I can't give any treatment. There's nothing I can do. And it's not because I'm incapable. No, the dharma is very capable. But this is an incurable, incurable patient. And they say, well, then I won't give you any more treatment. At least I give treatment to myself. I know one person here really wants to practice dharma. And then you can fall back into, okay, then. Sorry, world, but you're just not ready for Dharma, and I'm going to find, I know one person who is, and I'm going to follow, and I'm, I'm getting out of here. I'm getting out of here. And you could, it could happen. And so, then you could be Bodhisattva, and then an un-Bodhisattva could happen. Uh, so how could you, what needs to be done? How could you so fortify, there's a nice word, or another word is seal. How can you seal your Bodhicitta, fortify it, uh, so that no matter what happens, no matter what evil you perceive, you encounter, and so forth, you'll never lose heart. You'll never fall back. And it's actually, the, the answer makes really good sense to me. Your, this, this jewel heart, this jewel mind of bodhicitta, needs the armor of wisdom. It needs the protection of wisdom. Uh, insight, deep insight into core truths of reality, such as, just for starters, it's a really good start, insight into, into impermanence, into dukkha, and non-self. And the final one also is, it's the final one, that non-self issue, it's about personal identitiveness, personal, not necessarily the emptiness of all phenomena, that's bigger, but this is a good place to start. But if you, see, if you perceive a villain, a villain, an individual, a group, whoever they are, we don't need to give an example, we have so many to choose from, but you see a real villain where there's just such profound evil there that it, it, it almost makes you pass out. 
then you look through that and you see it's not the person, it's the mental affliction. It's not the person who is evil. Not from the court, not from the side of the individual. You can give any name you like, but it is not that person from his or her own side who is evil. It is that person massively dominated by mental afflictions that makes this person's mind evil, this person's behavior evil, and so forth. But there is no, por- there is no person who is evil at the core. It doesn't matter what they've done. There is no such person. And so the identitylessness of evil people, that they are not evil in their core, they are temporarily, massively under the domination of delusion, craving, <coughs> hostility, maybe a myriad of other mental afflictions. But they are the first victims. They are the first victims. They are the first victims of all the harm they bring to the world. And then, rather than giving up, then you just feel, these people are the most worthy of compassion. They're the first victims. And if they're bringing massive evil into the world, what's going to be the karma of, of that for them? Other people they kill, they just kill them once. Whether it's machine guns, whether it's gas chambers, whether it's torching people, whether it's poisoning them, whether it's nuke, nuking them and so forth. You kill other people, you only kill them once. You know, I mean, only once. Whereas the karma from that, Oh, almost defies the imagination. So who's going to suffer more? The person who perpetrated that suffering or those who are recipients. Recipients, you get it once. You get it in the teeth. You're dead. You're finished. They can't touch you anymore. You're off in the bar, though. They can't find you. You You're off. You're, you're, You're free now. You're off. You're off the hook of whatever individual regime or government or institution it is that's perpetrating such evil. But the person is never off the hook as a person who perpetrated it. And so it's just more compassion. So even when you encounter the most staggering evil in the world, it just is more fuel for your compassion, which means now your bodhicitta is irreversible. If you see goodness, it just makes you happy, and your bodhicitta just blazes up. You see samsara, it blazes up. You see evil, it blazes up. It just kind of blazes. It's nurtured by everything. The whole of samsara supports and nurtures your bodhicitta. Well, then you're, then you're on cruise control. That is, it's going to continue. You will not fall back now. But it needs wisdom for that. And then you ask, which wisdom? And in fact, it's right there. The four applications of mindfulness. That's it. Cultivate bodhicitta, and then if you want to stabilize it, fortify it, give it the armor, give it the protection of never falls back, you need shamatha to make it that level of bodhicitta, and you need the four applications of mindfulness to stabilize it to the point of irreversibility and achieve the medium stage of the Mahayana path of accumulation. So I heard that, and I said, okay, I've got my agenda. I have my marching orders. Shamatha, and everything that's needed to cultivate and, and to realize shamatha. Bodhicitta itself, the crown jewel, and then the four applications of mindfulness to fortify it. I figured, okay, I've got, that's enough for now. That's what I thought. That's enough, and that'll keep me busy for a while. And then all the other teachings, and we are exposed to many, Yamataka, Vajrayogini, Vajrasattva, Six, eventually six yogas of Naropa and Kala Chakra and yeah, but where are all of those if you don't have shamatha, you don't have bodhicitta and you don't even have basic insight where are those? they're clouds I just don't see how any of those constitute a path I just don't see it I just don't see it and I'm not I think, you know, the old timers like, you know, I'm not denigrating anything here I'm not putting down anything 
As the old saying in Tibetan goes, there are many profound practices, but not many profound practitioners. Anybody can get an empowerment. Go to the right place at the right time, pay your fee, or may pay no, pay no fee. You can get the empowerments. Guya Samaja, Kala Chakra, He Vajra, and so forth and so on. That's not hard. You can get teachings. That's not hard. I mean, they're there. These lamas are so generous. But are you a capable practitioner? They can actually take those practices and turn them into a path. No shamatha, no bodhicitta, no insight. Three retreat, knock yourself out. Do two or three in your three retreats, but if you don't have shamatha, genuine bodhicitta and realization of emptiness, what's the point of doing them again and again and again? I don't really get it. It's not that I don't get doing three retreats. But is the basis there? Is the basis there? Have you put in the time to really develop the the shamatha? and really cultivate bodhicitta, that it's not a liturgy, and really meditate deeply to cultivate insight, these foundational insight into the reality where we live. If that's there, then fantastic. Only rejoicing. If it's not, it looks like we're being swept away by the inertia of tradition. And what gets lost in the shuffle is the very notion of the path, and that's what he's highlighting here. This is the path. So earth, gold, moon, moon corresponds to the great stage of the Mahayana path accumulation, and this is the crescent moon. The crescent moon that you know it's just going to get bigger and bigger and bigger, fuller and fuller. So there it is, and that's just the first three. I look and I say, that's enough for me. The first three, Mahayana path accumulation. Okay, that one. Preparation, my understanding is vague. Understanding of the path of seeing, vaguer. Path of meditation, really vague. Enlightenment, a little bit of understanding, conceptual. So alternatively, there are three kinds of the bodhicitta, of conducting self, oneself with appreciation, the first one. It's moha in Tibetan. Appreciation is a very close translation. The bodhicitta of pure, extraordinary resolve. This is the laksam, the extraordinary resolve to free all sentient beings from suffering and to bring each one to a state of liberation. That's the extraordinary resolve. It's a technical term, laksam. And then the bodhicitta of maturation or fruition, of maturation. It has to be number mimba in Tibetan, must be. Which eliminate obscurations. So these three modes eliminate obscurations. Again, the ornament of the sutras, the sutra alamkara states, three levels of the generated aspiration, aspiration are asserted. Appreciation, the pure extraordinary resolve, and the maturation, they eliminate obscurations. And so then among the 22 divisions discussed in the Ornament for Higher Realization, the earth-like, gold-like, and moon-like bodhicitta are the states for us beginners. That's Mahayana path of accumulation. I so like that this, is, this, this text and the preceding one, these are completely practice texts. These are not study texts that people sit down you know, in monastic colleges and they study, study, study the great treatises. This isn't one of the great treatises. This is a meditation manual. Right? And I love that, that in the midst of a meditation manual, he's citing these great treatises, the great classics. These are classics that he's citing. But he's citing them not for egghead scholars, but for people who are really intent on practice. I'm an egghead scholar, by the way, so I, I'm not deprecating such people. I, I understand them. I'm one of them. So the ornament for higher realization states that the three mentioned types of bodhicitta are brought forth by appreciation, 
and they occur at the stage of beginners. My beginners within the five paths, path of accumulation, and read at your leisure. Gautam is very helpful uh, glossing or clarification of appreciation that one proceeds in these early phases of bodhicitta, not out of simply out, out of blind faith or belief or, I don't know, conformity and so forth. But on the contrary, as you're cultivating bodhicitta, you see through your own experience the benefits of cultivating the sublime mind. And that appreciation through your own experience inspires you, motivates you further, and that's what carries you through. Uh, so the word appreciation is very rich, and it entails insight, understanding, through your own experience. We continue a little bit more. This is this just inspired me no end when I first learned about it, and uh, it hasn't stopped. So we, now we have a couple of more classics. This is really classic. This is Indian Mahayana Buddhism. So, the, so we have these different modes of bodhicitta. The shepherd-like, and we'll see the other two, they're coming right up. So the best, the best bodhicitta is shepherd-like bodhicitta, with which one resolves not to attain enlightenment until oneself, not to achieve one's own enlightenment, one's own perfect Buddhahood, until all sentient beings have been brought to that state. So imagine that. You know, with this, the Buddhist worldview is actually no, no smaller than the, the view of modern cosmology, where, just to run some numbers, um, we are one planet within the Milky Way, which has on the order of about 400 billion stars, 300, 400, 500 billion in, in that ballpark. We have one star out of, let's say, let's take the average, 400 billion. That's one galaxy. And there are roughly 100 billion galaxies. They estimate 100 billion galaxies. That's a pretty big world, right? pretty large. And scientists now that they've discovered exoplanets, planets around other stars, they're estimating, these are informed guesses, that there's probably on the average about one planet for every star, with roughly 100 billion to a trillion stars per galaxy. 100 billion, small galaxy, a trillion big galaxy, or somewhere in between, mediocre as usual. Um, that for these, okay, so it's 100 billion times 100 billion to a trillion, that's how many stars. That's a lot of zeros. It probably winds up being an awful lot of sentient beings. The chances are, you know, they're guessing there in, the mod- in modern cosmology, and the Buddhism says, "Yeah, you're right. I mean, this, these are good. These are good numbers to knock around. And yes, a lot of those planets are inhabited. And so, when they say all sentient beings, they actually mean all of them, and not just on our planet, our galaxy, and so forth. They actually mean all of them. So this kind of just makes your mind like somebody put a hand grenade inside your head and just blows your mind all over the place, you know? like. Are you kidding me? And here it is. I mean, this is the noblest, the most awesome bodhicitta, to look out on the world of all sentient beings and to do so with the mind-boggling, it's kind of, the Tibetan word is semshuk, the power of your heart, the power of your heart, the strength of your heart, semshuk, to say, I care so much about all of the sentient beings that I'll see that every single one of them is brought to enlightenment before I step over and achieve perfect enlightenment. And it's called shepherd-like, for very good reason. Uh, and that is uh, the, sh- the Good Shepherd. We have this coming up in Christianity, the Good Shepherd in Buddhism. The Good Shepherd. The Good Shepherd at the end of the day, uh, bringing the flock back to the fold, getting them all bedded down, protected. And then once the flock is all bedded down, then the shepherd goes in and eats his porridge, or whatever he you know, gets for dinner. 
Um, but he takes care of the flock first. And if there's any stragglers, he goes out and gets them. And only when all of the flock are taken care of. Then he goes in and says, okay, now my, I've, done, I've done what I needed to do, and now I can go in and have my dinner. That's classic, you know, it's, it's uh, like in a parable. And that's the vision here, and they say, this is the, this is the, bodhicitta, this is the bodhicitta of Avalokiteshvara. That's the, the, most, the most noble. Then we have the helmsman, the second one, the helmsman-like bodhicitta. The helmsman, the navigator, uh, the metaphor here is very transparent. Again, if this is setting out on a voyage in which the passengers are all sentient beings, and the bodhisattva is the helmsman, the navigator, and it's the navigator's job to get them all across the ocean of samsara to the further shore, to liberation, to awakening. But of course, they're all going to get there at the same time. Uh, the navigator doesn't come afterwards. He doesn't jump, you know, that would be silly. But nor does he jump overboard and try to swim faster than the ship. That would be also silly. They all get there together. So that's the second type of bodhicitta. The helmsman-like bodhicitta is middling, and with it one resolves to attain Buddhahood or spiritual awakening oneself together with all sentient beings. Let's all go together. I'll bring you all over together. And then the least is the king-like bodhicitta. And this occurs when uh, you consider, since all sentient beings without exception have been my mother and father, they're all kin, they're all family, I must fulfill their needs, but I cannot do so now. I mean, I'm so limited, you know, I'm so limited. Therefore, I, want to, I must, in order to take care of all my family, uh, then I have to transcend my current limitations. And therefore, I resolve first to attain Buddhahood myself, then without needing to apply effort. Once you've achieved enlightenment, then all your activities are effortless, spontaneous then without needing to apply effort, I shall serve the needs of all sentient beings by means of effortless, spontaneous, enlightened activities until samsara is empty. So those are the three types of bodhicitta. And he said, this is important. So I had learned about that a long time ago. Never forgot it, actually. Many things. Most of the stuff, John, I learned I forgot. can't remember it anymore. There was too much. But this one I've never forgotten. Everything you just read, it never happened. I never forgot that. It's like 43 years earlier. Never forgot this one. The three modes of bodhicitta. It's interesting that he calls this is the best, this is the medium, this is the inferior. I think he's speaking to us beginners as he speaks as if he's one of us. Beginners just setting out on the path. Kamachame. Um, for us beginners, we have this powerfully ingrained tendency of me first. It's called self-centeredness. Self-centeredness. The sense that, well, if there's something good out there, um, let me have it. I'll get there first. Uh, me first, basically, it's me first. Everybody else second. And it happens in business, it happens in education, it happens in science. There's, there's grant money out there. Who's going to get it? Look out. We're coming for it. You know, it's competitive, fiercely competitive. And it's pretty much everywhere. In sports, in business, in football, I mean, it's everywhere. You know, me first, me first, me first. One country, me first. We have the greatest country. We have the best country. Me first. We're showing how great we are because we're pushing everybody else aside that we can get all the good stuff first. And so it's not East or West, it's not religious, not religious, and it happens in religion as well. We've seen it throughout all of history. That's why religion has such a bad reputation. 
people doing the most grotesque things in nature religion, because they're sure their, their religion is best. You know? And so it's everywhere. It's, it's such a deep, and it manifests everywhere. I mean, there's just no walk of life where it doesn't crop up, because it's such a deeply ingrained tendency. And so when we come to Mahayana, and we hear about perfect enlightenment, then the first thought is bound to be, me first. I want to get it. Look out. Okay, give me the fastest teaching. Give me the, give me the Rolls Royce. What is it? Dzogchen? Kala Chakra? Gui Samaja? What is it? What's the highest? Six yogas? I want those now. Make it snappy. How much do I have to pay? How, how many three-year retreats do I need to do? Come on. How, how much? And what's the best lama? What's the best lama? I want the best one. You know? Natural. It's natural. I'm not speaking sarcastically. It's very natural. But of course, it's completely antithetical to the whole Bodhisattva way of life, which is just the opposite where we cherish all of the sentient beings more than ourselves. And so he's saying the best one for us beginners is to so completely torpedo the sense of me first that we're saying everybody else first. That's pretty drastic. Everybody else first. And that is, I'll bring everybody else to enlightenment. And when everybody is taken care of, everybody's brought perfect enlightenment, then I'll step over the threshold. That's, that's really a massive head-on collision to self-centeredness. If one can rise to that, that's pretty awesome. But of course, wisdom has to come into play. And here's how it does, and that is this way I, I was taught it. When I was first introduced to this. But then when you consider, oh, imagine you actually bring forth that aspirate. You're willing to postpone your enlightenment until all sentient beings are, are Buddhas. That's, that's, that's awesome. But then you consider, is that practical? And that is, I'm saying, I want to lead people from the first Bodhisattva Bhumi to the second Bodhisattva Bhumi, and to the tenth Bodhisattva Bhumi. But I'm going to get them all there without having achieved that myself. I'm going to get them to the tenth Bodhisattva Bhumi and to Buddhahood without having been there myself. Uh, how does that work out exactly? And maybe it's a good heart, but maybe that's not so practical. Maybe, at the very least, I could take one step back and say, well, let's all get there together. That means I'm really still willing to post- postpone my own enlightenment for all those terrible evildoers in the world and so forth and so on. I'm going to bring us all. I'm not leaving anybody behind. But, so no child, no sentient being left behind. But we'll all get, together, get there together. But I'll, I'll be there with you, because otherwise, how can you be really a guide? If you're like a wagon train in the Old West. How can you lead a caravan of wagons across to the Pacific Ocean if you're not in the wagon train? If you just send them on ahead? Not a very practical strategy. The wagon master is with them, right? All the way, all the way to the Pacific Coast, along the Oregon Trail and so on. And so this is actually more practical. Be in the wagon train, be on the ship, and be there every, every step of the way. That's more practical. <coughs> But then, as we see in this king-like bodhicitta, but really, how practical is that? Uh, after all, a uh, when you achieve Buddhahood, it's not like infinite retirement. It's not like you, you, know, you, you put back your peels and say, oh, it's nice to be a Buddha, and never do anything anymore. <laughs> you know? It's kind of like, now you have a whole new job description. You have to be a Buddha forever, because there's nothing else to be. But the very nature of Buddhahood is not just resting in Dharmakaya, it's manifesting inconceivably and limitlessly as Sambhogakaya Nirmanakaya. And that is, in fact, the most effective way to bring all sentient beings to enlightenment. 
Because with your wisdom, you see what each individual sentient being needs, and you have the full compassion and the full power of, the, of your Buddha mind, implement that. So in terms of sheer practicality, it actually makes a lot more sense. Not out of selfishness, but out of the sheer principle of efficiency or efficacy. It would actually be most effective, most compassionate to, um, to get there yourself. It's like there being a plague, a plague. When I read Camus' Plague a long time ago, it kind of made an impression on me, because it really struck me like the whole world has a plague, a plague of delusion, craving hostility. And if you yourself have the plague, and everybody around you has the plague, and you feel this enormous compassion for all of them, maybe the best thing to do would be to heal yourself first, and know how you did it, and then go out and heal every single one but not try to heal them while you're completely, you know, blasted by the plague yourself. So that's where those three come. It just, it's, I think, gives rise to very, very rich food for thought. Mm, and that's a good place to pause. But the three types of bodhicitta, I don't know what impression this made on your mind, but I know when I first learned about it, and these early stages of bodhicitta, I know it's made in a... Uh, a lasting impression, because I remember this like I was taught yesterday. Uh, it's very powerful. So let's just pause. And uh, at the end of the day, which we aren't there yet, but when the end of the day comes, and it comes time for dedicating merit, to dedicate the merit of your days, activities, uh, in which you can rejoice at your leisure, but the time to dedicate, it would be very good to dedicate to the cultivation of such bodhicitta where it's not arisen and that it may develop and develop and develop where it, where it has arisen all the way through the 22. You know. They say it's like putting an investment, like investing. Have, you have something good here, something called merit, goodness, spiritual energy. Call it whatever you like. It's punya in Sanskrit. But you have something really good, some kind of capital, some capital, something you, could, you, could, you can use in various ways. Uh, they can give you right, rise to all, all kinds of good things. But it's like like um, placing that capital in a vault where it will never be stolen, it will never vanish, it will never erode or fall away. And it's said by dedicating your bodhicitta, dedicating your merit to bodhicitta, to enlightenment with all sentient beings, that protects it. It'll be there. It's your, it's your deep investment. And it'll be there until you're enlightened. Sounds like a good idea. Oh, no, so, so enjoy your evening.